0: This is an ABC podcast. So, Norman, I really hope we're not going to jinx anything by announcing this, but you and therefore Coronacast are taking a bit of a break.
1: Yeah, I'm going off for a month or so. And you know what happens when we take a break.
0: Well, I hope it doesn't happen. But yeah, historically, what has happened when we've tried to take a break is that there's a new variant of concern or there's some huge outbreak or something terrible coronavirus related happens. But maybe this time it'll be different.
1: Yes, I'm sure it will be different. We just can't get involved in too much magical thinking. Somehow, Coronacast has a power over the evolution of this virus.
0: <laughs> Although they do say that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and hoping for a different result. But maybe this time we'll get a different result.
1: Let's hope we're wrong.
0: Well, we'll have a bit more to say about that at the end of the episode. But for now, Norman, let's do Coronacast, a show all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor.
1: And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Wednesday the 15th of June 2022.
0: And even though the coronavirus tends not to be particularly severe in young kids... It can be, and because we love our children, it's one of those things that we get a lot of questions about a lot of the time, is how bad coronavirus is in young kids, what we can do to protect them, and of course, when we're going to see a vaccine for kids under the age of five. But there's actually a bit of research giving answers to some of those questions, uh, Norman. So let's start right at the beginning about how to protect babies before they're even born.
1: Well, there's good news there. If you are immunized in the second or third trimester of pregnancy, according to a Norwegian study, which really looked at large numbers of people, if you have immunized yourself during pregnancy, um, you're protecting your baby in the first four months of life. So over 21,000 newborn babies, uh, about a half were born to women who had a second or third dose of COVID-19 vaccine during pregnancy. And the rate of infection in the babies in the first four months of life was significantly lower. So that's great news.
0: Is that because they're getting it during the pregnancy itself or is there something to do with perhaps those antibodies being continued to pass through the breast milk if the mum breastfeeds as well?
1: So the assumption here is that this passes from the mother through the placenta into the baby. So the baby born loaded up with antibodies. There is another study, which is also good news, which is about breastfeeding and showing that breast milk also confers protection against, uh, against infection for COVID. So the first four months of the life are very, very important. The baby is vulnerable. They're not yet fully immunized against other diseases And um, therefore, that's a very good time to have the baby protected when they're at their most vulnerable. So both breast milk and immunization during pregnancy protect the baby. And of course, mothers get quite sick during pregnancy if they catch COVID. So it's really important to get immunized during pregnancy. And it's particularly important also to get immunized against influenza. You do not want to get influenza during pregnancy. It's bad for you as a mother and bad for the children.
0: And so then talking about kids who are a bit older than newborns, as we said, COVID doesn't tend to be particularly bad in young kids, but they can rarely get this disease that they, they're called MISC, multi-system inflammatory syndrome. And there's a study uh, in, also in Scandinavia looking at how it differs between kids who've been vaccinated versus ones who haven't been.
1: Yeah, we've got a lot to thank the Scandinavians for because they really do have incredible medical records and they're able to link things together so you understand this. We'd be lost without them because we don't have records that are anywhere near as good as they do. And what they looked at here was this multi-system inflammatory syndrome, which really can be quite nasty, can affect the kidneys, uh, really lay the children low for a considerable period of time. It's incredibly rare. So they took a group of Children and young people aged not to 17 years, and they compared that to their vaccination rate. Obviously, it was going to be the over four, over fives who were vaccinated, and they took data on the inflammatory syndrome from 18 different pediatric centers throughout Denmark, and they calculated the risk. and What they found was that there was uh, during the period of time that they were measuring this, which was through Delta into Omicron, uh, one vaccinated and 11 unvaccinated children with with multi-system disease amongst 583,000 infected children and adolescents. So you can see how rare it is It shows you the protection the vaccination can give you against MISC. What they showed also was that comparing the Omicron wave to the Delta wave, Omicron was not as likely to cause multisystem inflammatory syndrome in unvaccinated children. So it seemed to be less likely in its own right to produce the multisystem inflammatory disorder, although it still did so, but at a lower rate. And again, vaccination protected.
0: And then you mentioned, yeah, of course, the the kids in these studies at the moment are kids over the age of five, because that's the age group that these vaccines are approved for. In the United States, this week, authorities are meeting to look at the evidence for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines for kids under five. And so we'll hear what their decision is soon. What's the latest for us here in Australia, though?
1: Pfizer, you might remember, was sent back to school on this one because they did a two dose regimen in children aged six months to five years. And what they found was they didn't get an adequate antibody response. So they were sent back to do a three-dose study, and they're claiming that they're getting uh, good results. Uh, This is a study in about 1,600 children. It was well-tolerated and seemed to produce a good response. Now, remember, these data are not published. These are data that we're hearing off-press release. But they're stating that the vaccine had an efficacy of 80%, which suggested that there was an 80% lower risk of developing COVID-19, and that was measured during Omicron. So that's pretty good. That's probably better than adults. Moderna is probably a bit ahead here with this. They're using a higher dose and a two-dose regimen. So they did two studies, one in six months to two years, one in two years to six years old, and they showed round about the 40% efficacy rate. What they were not able to report on was the protection against severe illness because there wasn't any severe illness in the trials of the of these children. And the, that was a trial in total of nearly 7,000 children. So it shows you how rare severe disease can be in kids.
0: Which I guess means the standard of proof is even higher, that they're showing benefit?
1: Yeah, well, they've got to be sure they're, sure they're safe. I mean, they both claim that they've shown that they're safe. Longer term, we'll find out whether or not this has an impact on long COVID, which is an issue in children, although less than adults. But it's safe and effective. It's an important group to get protected, particularly with flu and other respiratory diseases around. You want kids as maximally protected as they can be. So we we'll just have to wait and see.
0: And the latest from the TGA is that it's, uh, was, it received a, an application to evaluate Moderna for kids aged six months to five years about a month ago. And it's, that's underway.
1: We'll get young children's vaccines sometime this year, probably.
0: So our lovely listeners are always sending us in excellent questions, Norman. We can't get to all of them, but we did get one from Mr. Adam Ant on Twitter saying, if I can ask an influenza question, okay, are there rapid tests available for influenza? And if so, where are they?
1: Well, you can answer that one.
0: There are rapid antigen tests that you can do for influenza, but they're mostly point of care tests. So... We think of rats as being something that you can buy at the the supermarket or the pharmacy because that's what we've been able to do with them recently. But there are point-of-care tests that doctors can do where they basically, instead of having to go and do a lab PCR test for whatever diseases that you've got, they can do these tests for influenza. And the truth is they don't usually use them because by the time you've done the test and got the results back, if it's the flu, it's generally self-limiting. So they usually say that the thing... The reason why you would do them with influenza, historically at least, is if you're not sure if that's what the person has, if they may be eligible for antiviral therapy, or if you think it might be pandemic influenza. But of course, now that we're living in a pandemic of a different respiratory disease, maybe there are, I mean, I'd be interested to get your take, Norman, on whether there are reasons why we should be using rats for other respiratory diseases beyond just kind of wanting to satisfy our own curiosity.
1: Look, I think in a situation where you've got rapid and serious spread of, of influenza, then these tests become useful in terms of control but at the moment, I'm getting, if you like, a proper test done where you're looking at the virus, testing for the virus so you know what kinds of influenza viruses are circulating, whether other viruses are circulating which are mimicking influenza. So really, those point-of-care tests don't tell you any of that. So you, you
0: know,
1: if your doctor chooses to get a test, you're probably better getting the proper pathology test done so that it goes into the data for influenza surveillance.
0: I wondered whether if there was a commercial market for a rapid antigen test for flu that you could buy that maybe manufacturers would make them because they would be making money off them, but I didn't know if it would actually have a a real kind of public health benefit.
1: Yeah, the public health benefit in a seasonal flu situation is knowing how much virus there is around, um, who's getting it and what viruses they're being infected with. So at the moment, that's the reason we know now that there's a really good match between the circulating influenza viruses and the vaccine. Now, if you started getting adrift from there, um, then you would start to get worried. But also, it starts to inform you about what vaccines should look like next year when you look at the circulating viruses, and you don't get that from point-of-care testing.
0: Well, back to COVID. And Claire's got a question. She said that she's noticed that cases in Victoria and other states seem to be falling significantly and is wondering whether it's being underreported and she because it's the opposite of what she expected heading into winter.
1: The cases do seem to be falling. It's not accurate. There's no question about that. We're underreporting. But there's probably been no sudden change in the way people are reporting so that people are suddenly stopping. There does seem to be a bit of a tail off in some states of um, hospitalizations, although deaths, unfortunately, still kind of up there. They're not increasing anymore. They may be starting to head down. So all, all the information we've got seems to suggest that maybe we've come off a peak of Omicron, maybe Omicron BA2. And the question now coming into winter is, are we going to see a surge of BA4 and 5 and they start behaving like variants of concern. We've spoken about that before in Coronacast. So be thankful for what we've got at the moment and buckle up for winter because BA4 and BA5 may start to hit or indeed a new variant of concern. And given that we're taking a break, I know where my embedding.
0: Well, Norman, it's just about time for me to let you step onto a plane and fly away on your holiday. So, yes, we are having a break from CoronaCast over the next few weeks at least, but we're not going to be completely silent. So keep an eye on the feed. I might have a little treat for you in the next week or so.
1: Oh, tell me so I can listen while I'm away.
0: Oh, you'll have to listen anyway.
1: Well, that's all for this week. We'll see you next time, wherever next time is, but it'll be three four weeks' time.
0: That's right. Uh, and if you're looking for something to listen to while you're crying yourself to sleep without Norman and me, maybe you'd like to check out a different ABC podcast. It's called Back to You. It comes from David Spears and a couple of ABC journos. Sometimes they talk about health things, which is my, it might help scratch that CoronaCast itch for you. And you can find it in the ABC Listen app.
1: We'll see you next time.
0: And have a good holiday, Norman. I'm, I'm waving my hanky at you as you sail away from me.
1: It's going to be hell, but somebody's got to do it.
0: (laughs) See you later.